You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today's an interesting episode because it'll be the first episode where two guests are here instead of one. Today, we have Clayman's Wolf and Sean Bathgate. They're using Flask and Python to help power a custom hardware device that brings affordable email to rural communities such as the African Congo. Guys, welcome to the show. So great to be here, Nick. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, happy to have you on. So, Clemens, do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about this project? Would love to. So, hi, I'm uh, Clemens Wolf, and uh, I'm the, the lead founding engineer of the uh, Locally project from the Canadian Congolese nonprofit Ascudero. Basically, what we're doing is we're building custom hardware, as, as you mentioned, and software services to enable efficient uh, communication access in places such as the Congo Democratic Republic. And uh, this, this project came out of the, the vision of the founder of, of the, the nonprofit called Nzola. Uh, Nzola has many decades of experience working with rural communities in the communication sector. And he saw that in his home country, the Congo DRC, there was bandwidth available almost everywhere, but almost nobody was able to leverage that bandwidth just because it's very expensive compared to local salaries. And so Nzola had this brilliant idea of let's make use of software to enable communities to pool their money to purchase bandwidth and enable access to this rich communication network. And that's that's what a local project was born. And so we've been working for the last couple of years on making these devices a reality and uh, shipping them to the Congo, building the services that power them and enabling communities to if, uh, communicate more efficiently. Yeah, that sounds uh, amazing. So when you say custom hardware here, and, and it's been shipped for quite some time now, is this just like a Raspberry Pi wrapped up into some like appliance or is it some other hardware? That is exactly it. Uh, actually, we're using Orange Pies, which are um, a slightly cheaper version of Raspberry Pis that are slightly more uh, underpowered. So Orange Pies, you can get them for about $13 on AliExpress. They have uh, two cores, half a gig of RAM and a couple of USB slots. So it's perfect for, for what we're doing. And then we hook uh, USB modems into these Orange Pies and then we're, we're good to go. The, the USB modem then is used to create a data connection with uh, the local cellular networks using a SIM card that uh, the, the community would provide. And then we, we use that to create the, the internet connection whenever bandwidth is cheap. Uh, one thing that we noticed is that at certain times of day, uh, for example, during night times, bandwidth can be as much as 10 or 100 times cheaper. And so we're, we're, le- we're leveraging that fact to, to basically make it even more affordable to, to access these services. Additionally, we then also you know, use compression uh, to, to further reduce the bandwidth cost. And so we, we, we couldn't implement just normal email client there, just normal communication client. Instead, we uh, ship our own services. Uh, those are hosted in Azure. So that's the other part of, of the stack that we're building. So we have one part, which is the, the custom hardware that's deployed to the communities. And then we have our services in Azure that uh, the hardware that communicates with. Okay. And those services in Azure, are they running uh, Flask and Python or is Flask and Python actually running on the hardware? The hardware runs Flask and Python, and the service in Azure also run Python, and uh, an abstraction layer on top of Flask called Connection. Uh, Connection is an open source project by a company called Zalando, and they uh, they published this framework that basically enables you to specify open API files, so Swagger definitions for your service, and then annotate them with some metadata that points towards a Python function, 
and then uh, Connection will take care of scaffolding the routes for you, uh, taking the requests, validating them, and then taking your return values, which can now be simple Python types and you know mapping them back to JSON outputs. So it's really quite a clever framework that minimized a lot the boilerplate that we had to to implement for APIs. And uh, Sean, maybe do you want to comment a bit about a a contributor to the project who, who wasn't around for when that decision of using Connection was made, uh, how, how you found the framework, how it's worked out for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I came into the project a little later, so I've just uh, been contributing since early of last year. And uh, I found that the, um, the nature of having the dual systems was definitely an interesting one to get involved with. Originally, we had them separated entirely into two separate stacks where now things have begun to uh, be combined within the GitHub and it allows for a little bit of an easier transition and understand where the Python that's being used on the Azure side of things or on the Raspberry Pi slash Orange Pi um, and uh, provides it to be a much easier uh, a much easier learning curve and understanding of where the systems integrate with each other. Okay, so for the sake of this conversation, then would it be fair to say that we can treat this as like a client-server type of application, where the server stuff is on Azure and the client side is the hardware? Exactly. Yeah. So we have our client application that is basically the the email app that runs the, the communication app that runs on the hardware in the Congo DRC and that talks to our APIs in Azure um, with the caveat that you know the client itself is a client-server application uh, to actually run the, uh, the the communication infrastructure on, on the, the devices. Okay. So before we move on and start talking a little bit more about the tech here, uh, I guess we should maybe cover, like, how much traffic do you guys deal with through these systems? And, you know, what uh, type of communities do you reach out to besides the African Congo, if there is some? So we're very small nonprofit, so our scale is mostly limited by our ability to roll out new new customers. Uh, and Zola went to the Congo DRC last summer, and he distributed ten pilot sites. So that's all that we have running for now, because we don't have really the operations bandwidth to support more at the point. So that is a couple of hundred users. Uh, traffic is quite bursty because, as I mentioned before, we actually schedule these devices to connect to the internet only at certain times of day when the bandwidth is cheap for the for the current location. And so we have zero traffic most of the time. And then the clients wake up and it's like, oh, bandwidth is cheap, let's go purchase some and let's transfer a whole bunch of stuff to the cloud and uh, receive all the emails that have been uh, written to this particular client since the last time that we, that we uh, requested our, our updates. So it's a very bursty traffic. Ah, nice. Yeah, it's also very interesting to hear that there's such a difference in in the cost between the time of day. Like it brings me back to the olden days where, you know, we have like dial up in the US and there was different prices for different times and like long distance service and stuff. But this sounds like it's like that, but like way more, I guess, user unfriendly. Yeah, it's I mean, it's insane the price differences during the night for example you can get a gigabyte of bandwidth for about a US dollar and a US dollar is the average daily income of a person uh, in, a, in a place like the Congo DRC so that's still a substantial amount of money but then if you spread that out over let's say 10 100 people in a community you know it starts to become quite affordable that same dollar during the day may buy you 10 megabytes right and so if you can take use of this time shifted way of communicating really making a communication asynchronous you can get some quite tremendous savings there yeah, for sure. So going back to the tech stack here, what motivated you to use Flask and Python on the client side inside of that hardware? Flask and Python are 
very contributor friendly, let's say. Python is a language that is easy to learn, easy to pick up. Flask has a lot of great documentation out there. So it was a choice that was made mostly to enable contributors to easily ramp up on the stack. And uh, Sean can speak a bit more to this experience, but uh, a lot of tech choices that we made essentially are centered around the fact that we uh, are entirely volunteer run. And so we need to make sure that people can, you know, ramp up and contribute very quickly with the tools that are easily accessible and uh, standard in, in the ecosystem. Uh, Sean, do you want to talk a bit more about how you found uh, ramping up on the various parts of the stack? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so one of the one of the aspects that I really liked with the technologies used in this was my ability to, as Clemens has said, the uh, the documentation that is widely available. So when I'm trying to adopt and learn the technologies that were being used, it was a really easy transition for me to understand that there wasn't uh, some niche proprietary technology that was being included. There were, it was readily accessible, which allowed for my onboarding to be relatively straightforward. It, uh, it enables so that when we do have, we might have contributors that are quite short term and they've used it as an opportunity to dig their teeth in and by using these uh, more open, uh, readily available technologies enables them to very quickly uh, get themselves up to date, being able to then contribute to the project and uh, then being able to actually put in a meaningful contribution. Right. And just to be uh, open here, both of these server and client side are both on GitHub, right? Or was it just the client side? That's correct. All of the code that we have is completely open source on GitHub. We actually also published a couple of uh, small modules independently that, that we built for this project. Uh, for example, we're using compression, as I mentioned, to further reduce the cost of bandwidth for the communication exchange. And so we recently implemented uh, that compression as uh, Z standard, and uh, we, we compress basically tar files, uh, and so made a little wrapper uh, to emulate the Python tar file uh, library using Z-standard compression. So we also published that. Like everything that we have is open source on GitHub, licensed under Apache 2, so people can come in, take a look at what we have. Uh, we really value the developer setup experience, so you can get started with one command on, on your laptop. It spins up the entire stack, front end, uh, the client infrastructure, the backend infrastructure, the various queues, all of the uh, Azure infrastructure services that we use are mocked out, so that you can run equivalent services locally and really get started uh, quickly and have that first uh, easy uh, contribution experience. Right. So when it comes to the Flask side here on both the client and the server, maybe we can uh, individually tackle those. Are there specific libraries that you've used in the project that really helped you get going? On the server side, we're heavily using Celery. Uh, as as we mentioned before, we're fairly small nonprofit, and so we optimize heavily for for cost of, of running the service. And so whenever we can do something asynchronously, you know, we, we can do it later. The, our traffic is very bursty, so we don't have to process everything right now. So the more things that we can farm off to task queues, the easier it is for us to keep our costs predictable. And so we make a heavy use of um, of Celery for, for background tasks using RabbitMQ when running locally or Azure Service Bus when running that in production on, on the cloud side as, as the actual queue implementation. And then on the client side, it's mostly a basic Flask application with a SQL alchemy for a local database. And uh, also there are some uh, salary jobs for running uh, scheduled tasks, such as the exchange with the server side uh, and you know checking for updates and all of those good stuff. Right. So just to maybe like paint a picture here, because this is not like a hardware device that you know, we can just look at over the internet. Is this like just basically 
comparable to maybe like a router? And then maybe there's like a, a web front end where you can look at stuff or no? Yeah, so essentially we are actually setting up a, a router on, on the Raspberry Pi or on the Orange Pi that we ship out. So we're, we're setting up a bunch of Linux services. We're using host APD to create a local Wi-Fi access point and then uh, that users would connect to. And then on that local Wi-Fi access point, we run DNS mask as a local DNS server. And then users can go to particular uh, domains that are that are set up on, on the Raspberry Pi or Orange Pi and then one of those domains would host our email client application where then users can log in, uh, you know, create accounts. Uh, those accounts map to a particular uh, email domain name. For example, if you are in the Bumbu province, your administrator may have set up this particular device as bumbu.locale.ca. And so when you make an account, it would be, you know, my account at bumbu.locale.ca. So you can self-service sign up there. You can write some emails and then whenever the administrator configures the, the email exchange, uh, you will, you know, th those emails will be sent, your, your emails to your inbox will be received. Uh, the administrator also has a panel to configure uh, things such as which SIM card configuration to use for dialing up, you know, we're, we're operating in a wide range of different environments. And so, you know, the, the various providers of, of internet services in the in the local region may have different SIM card uh, configurations that need to be provided. And then we use that configuration using tools like um, USB mode switch and WV dial to then, you know, create that internet connection. So there's quite a lot of, on, on the client side, there's quite a lot of Linux services being used to actually create this experience. Yeah, it almost sounds like a lot of the moving parts there are, aren't really related so much to Flask, but just Linux tools, right? Exactly. We have a heavy usage of subprocess.run uh, to, to drive some of these Linux services. Uh, for example, you know, creating an internet connection via USB modem that was actually very poorly documented uh, with tools like VVDial, uh, especially in, in regions like the Congo DRC that don't have that many users for these tools, right? And so figuring out the correct SIM card configurations for Orange Telecom in Congo DRC was, was a little bit of a challenge. Right. So going to the uh, Flask app here, what would you say like roughly, and I know lines of code is a terrible metric for like how big an app is, but just to give some scope to the project, like how much lines of code are there on the client and server? So I run the clock tool on our code base before our conversation, and in total we have 7,600 lines of Python, uh, 1,100 lines of YAML, about 900 lines of JavaScript, and you know, similar amount of, of client-side templates. So it's really not that much code at all, actually. And uh, a lot of that logic is on the server side, where we're running those processes to you know, take the files that uh, the client uploads, uh, decompress them, and then turn them into real emails and send them on, and dealing with receiving of the emails from, from SendGrid, our transaction email provider and also you know all of the automation for setting up those uh, mx records uh, for setting up the, the mailboxes with sendgrid etc and so i think it's really quite impressive that with relatively little amount of code we can build this entire this entire system and it's a bit of a testament to to python and uh, the module ecosystem right so sean do you maybe want to chime in here with like what your experience has been developing the server side so far uh, yeah, absolutely. So one of the more recent taskings that I've taken on is um, our server-side setup has predominantly uh, relies on the Azure resource um, uh, scripting with some Bash shell scripts to essentially configure using the Azure uh, CLI to configure and create our server infrastructure. And so one of the big things that we've been looking at doing more recently is uh, transitioning over to uh, more of an infrastructure as code capability. And uh, so the project that I've been taking on is uh, 
utilizing Terraform. And that way we can create something that, again, as we, uh, as Clemens had mentioned earlier, we're hoping to have something that's uh, widely documented, capable for outside contributors to be able to jump in and be able to substantially contribute and provide us with new capabilities. And uh, so, yeah, so that's something that we've been transitioning over to Terraform to provision all of our cloud resources. There's, uh, depending on how the stack has originally been built, we're looking at somewhere around the 38 plus uh, independent resources um, in the Azure. That's everything from our current infrastructure that uses a virtual machine. Uh, so then you have to have your network security group, your virtual network, uh, the network interface card to the variety of resource groups, some that are utilized for the user management and the storage of the emails, for instance. Uh, we have a series of uh, service bus queues and uh, our uh, storage containers as well. And so it's uh, everything's sort of broken down into a few different factors that will enable us to uh, better provision the system and be able to automate that process. Um, I'm not sure if yeah, Clemens would like to elaborate on any of the more specific nuances of it. Yeah, so the, the move to Terraform is again one of those quality of life improvements we're doing for the development experience uh, to better uh, leverage contributors uh, ramping up. So we used to have a lot of bash scripts <laughs> that basically I wrote to quickly spin up our infrastructure and while I may be very comfortable with bash, a lot of contributors aren't and so now we're moving that to terraform just to have a bit of my more industry standard tool for, for managing that another thing to double click on maybe that uh, sean mentioned we're currently running all of this on a single vm in azure we actually used to run on the azure kubernetes service but uh we found over time that it was very difficult for us to keep up with all the version updates like uh, Azure Kubernetes service uh, supports the latest three versions of Kubernetes and you know the release flow is quite quick and sometimes there are breaking changes so you need to then update your YAML templates all those things additionally we found that there were some quite gnarly to debug network issues that sometimes just randomly happened and so it took a lot of time away from feature development and so we actually then backported from running on kubernetes to running on uh, docker compose on just a single vm because anyways we currently have fairly limited amount of scale and most of the work is uh, on, on the service side is asynchronous via the task queues so we can scale quite quite easily with that single vm for now okay well, there's uh, a lot of good stuff to unwind there. So you did mention that you are using Docker Compose then in production. Are you also using Docker Compose in development then? Yes. And that was actually one of my latest, latest big projects was to move everything to a single Docker Compose setup so that you can run Docker Compose up and it spins up everything from, you know, your uh, Celery backend to the Celery worker to the client so that everything is wired up and you can actually test the entire system uh, in, in isolation and you can, you know, make an account in the client just like a user would do in the CongoDRC in the village there, then write some email, that email actually gets processed by your locally set up service and eventually send out via the transactional email provider and so everything you, you can set it up all up locally uh, using Docker Compose. Right. So going back to that choice about using Azure, did you guys do a comparison between that and AWS or Google Cloud or something else before choosing that? So we settled on Azure for two reasons. Uh, the most important one is that Azure has a very generous nonprofit grants program. Uh, so we get 5000 Canadian dollars a year in free Azure credits, uh, which is more than enough to run our entire stack currently. 
Um, we also managed to score quite well in some uh, hackathons. So I actually work at, at Microsoft in my day job. And so I uh, did a couple of hackathons in, in the company around Tech for Good, Tech for Africa with the project. So we were able to get a couple more credits through through that process also. So that was actually w one of the main reasons why I went with Azure, where it was nice grants. Uh, additionally, you know, I also know it very well uh, working on it as, as my day job. And so that was one of the other reasons to go with it, just familiarity. Right. So you mentioned all this is, is running on one box. Do you know what the specs are of that, like memory and CPU? Sean, you looked into it recently. Uh, do you want to take that? Yeah, absolutely. So the um, the virtual machine that we're using is configured with Linux Ubuntu Server uh, 18.04 LTS. And the actual machine itself, uh, we're using a standard uh, D4S version 3 server system. And uh, so that is... Um, 16 gigabyte of memory and uh, uses four, uh, like four core CPU or uh, four CPU, sorry. Okay. And do you know like what the average load is on that machine? Like, is it barely approaching like 2% or is it almost maxed out? Um, Clemens, are, I'm, I wouldn't say I necessarily have the answer for that. Uh, yeah, it's barely, barely, uh, barely a 2%. It's very low utilization. Right. That's very cool. Like, that's one thing I really love about Flask and Python. It's like you can have this thing running on a low-powered, you know, a Raspberry Pi or something with half a gig of, of memory, and it's totally fine. Or you can have it on, like, a, a big server and also totally fine. Yeah, and again, the load is kind of spiky. So when, you know, clients connect, then we, we do have some, some load there. Uh, however, no when you're close to maxing out those four cores, the memory is a little bit higher, the memory utilization. Uh, especially as we take the, the files transmitted from the clients and have to decompress them. A lot of the decompression happens in memory, uh, in chunks. And so, uh, you know, there's a little higher utilization there. Mm -hmm. And that's all like pretty much CPU load for that? Yep. Okay. So you did mention, you know, Docker, Docker Compose all on one machine. So maybe we can rewind a little bit and talk a little bit more about your tech stack because you also mentioned you're using SQL Alchemy and uh, you are using RabbitMQ. With with Celery, there is there anything else? Like, do you have Nginx sitting in front of maybe like a G Unicorn web server or something else? Yeah. So on the client side, we are having the standard setup with Nginx in front of G Unicorn in front of Flask uh, for for the for the Flask application part. In production, we're running G Unicorn inside of each of the Docker containers. Then the application is structured in such a way that you can run one or multiple endpoints or one or multiple Celery consumers per container, and so. You know, we can basically, although it's a monolith, we can shard it quite easily. We can spin up multiple containers for endpoints that are running hot. For example, the endpoint that receives emails sent to uh, the clients, that has naturally more traffic, right? Because it's one endpoint that's shared across all the clients. Or SendGrid posts the, the emails from the outside world to us. So we can run multiple copies of that endpoint and only have a couple of copies uh, running for the actual client receiving endpoints. So... We're running those, we're running Celery uh, with RabbitMQ, but that is for local development. In production, we're running uh, with the Azure uh, service bus connector for Celery. And then we have locally running Azureite, which is a containerized version of Azure storage. And uh, in production, we're using the normal Azure storage accounts, which is like uh, AWS S3 kind of key value object storage for, for all of our data storage. Then on the client applications, we have SQL Alchemy as a database backed by SQLite, which we also use as the task store for uh, for Celery on, on the clients. Uh, however, on the service side, we're not using any SQL storage. We're only using the uh, Azure storage object uh, 
objects stored there, uh, mostly for cost reasons, because Azure storage is ridiculously cheap. It's like a couple of cents per gigabyte, whereas something like Cloud SQL uh, gets a bit more expensive already. And then, you know, we're trying to build a sustainable model here that we're not reliant on on grants or things like that going forwards and could potentially run this even from a small subscription fee of each of the, the local communities. And so we're trying to keep our operational costs as low as possible. Yeah, for sure. Now, when it comes to that Nginx setup, do you run like Let's Encrypt on the client and the server, or maybe do you just issue your own certificates between the two? Like, how does that work? The clients are identified by keys that uh, get created when the client is provisioned. Currently, the client setup is a fairly manual process, unfortunately. Like, you set up a, a Raspberry Pi or an Orange Pi, uh, you SSH into it, and you run a script on on the device, you know, to set up everything. And at that point, you would generate a, a unique key and then communicate that back to our service. And then that key gets presented when the client connects back to the service. So it's like a, a pre-shared password in a way, uh, so that we don't have to provision any any certificates on those on those devices. Uh, because again, those certificates would have to be managed. That's more bandwidth that we have to transfer. So we're trying to, to, to minimize, you know, the the non-user-facing traffic that goes out of each of the clients. However, for the uh, the service side, we do use uh, Let's Encrypt uh, to create the DSL certificate. So that's set up with a cron job for CertBot to to keep that running. Then Nginx sits in front of uh, of the Docker containers that are running in Compose for for serving the traffic. Okay. Now you mentioned user-facing traffic there. So if a client, like a human being, were using a laptop or whatever, and they send an email out, is that email fully encrypted to your uh, hardware device and then out to your server? So the connection between the user's device and the client would be uh, unencrypted, or rather it's only using the normal like Wi-Fi encryption. So we, we are turning on the standard settings in in host APD for that. However, we don't have any certificates on the client box, right? So that is just plain HTTP traffic. However, the traffic between the uh, devices and the service is encrypted, and all of those files are stored, encrypted, and uploaded in encrypted format. Okay, nice. Yeah, it's always good to know that, uh, at least out the door, the encryption is there. Yeah, and for the local uh, client you know, encryption, it would be definitely a nice feature to add. That's something we haven't gotten around to, uh, but definitely would be a great, uh, great, uh, great addition to the stack. Right, but I'm sure for now, they're just happy that you know they can communicate with their families or whoever else they want to send emails to. Exactly. We've had quite tremendous uh, adoption and people are asking us, you know, when can we buy more of this? It's always a, a good thing when you give something uh, for free uh, in the initial test and people ask you, okay, when can I start paying for this to have more of it? So that's a, a nice testament to Twinzola's vision being being realized. Um, however, you know, with the limited stuff that we have, we, we can only scale so quickly. Right. So before you mentioned that uh, to really set up one of these clients, you have to SSH in, execute some script and you know, it's off to the races on that. But when it came to the server side, you know, you're dealing with like 30 plus different Azure services and you moved over to using Terraform. Uh, Sean, have you been working on that Terraform setup then? Or was that uh, Clemens? Uh, so yeah, the Terraform is something that I've been uh, undertaking. It isn't uh, fully implemented in production just yet. It's quite literally a uh, an ongoing project as we speak right now. And... Um, yeah, so that's something that I've been working at uh, implementing over the course of the last couple of weeks more specifically. I uh, had to evaluate some different options. We'd explored options such as Polymy and uh, decided that the community backing and the, the sort of 
what the wider adoption of Terraform would allow for the easiest uh, future contributor access. Right. So on a scale from like one to 10, how happy are you moving to Terraform away from like a million bash scripts? <laughs> it definitely adds a much nicer readability to the code and uh, enables us to having some of the sort of the plan capability and some of the configuration future capability will be excellent with Terraform. The uh, bash scripts are definitely something I am personally not necessarily the strongest with. And so it's a bit of a chore when I'm having to scroll through and try to translate and tweeze out the aspects I might be evaluating. And so having something that's a much more linear process and uh, provides much easier uh, adjustment capability, I'm really quite excited for this change to get finalized. Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of like automation and, you know, setting up infrastructure, are, are you using anything like Ansible to actually configure the servers themselves or maybe even in the future of the client as well or no? We currently don't have Ansible um, or it's equivalent integrated. Um, I'll hand it over to Clemens about whether or not there's a, sort of a future vision for their inclusion. It would definitely be interesting. I mean, we, we don't have that much to set up on the on the VM I, that runs the service currently because, you know, it's mostly just, okay, install Docker, install Nginx. So it's fairly manageable to have that in Bash for now. And so it would definitely be interesting. There is also a, a project that uh, another nonprofit that we worked with a little while ago called uh, Treehouses. They, they made this this tool to provision Raspberry Pi devices. So that would be also interesting to move to anything to get away from the mountains of bash scripts that we have to set things up currently, to, to be honest, because as, as Sean mentioned, they're not super maintainable, not super easy to ramp up on. And quite frankly, it can be a bit overwhelming if you open up this file and it's like, oh, there's a thousand lines of cryptic bash commands here. Great, it's not the, the easiest thing to contribute to on your Saturday afternoon, right? Um, so some, moving to something like Ansible would be certainly very interesting for, for the client setup also. Right. Yeah, because you mentioned you had a couple hundred lines of YAML files there in your setup. So I was wondering if that was like an Ansible YAML file thing, but it turns out, nope. Yeah, those are our leftover uh, Kubernetes manifests from when we're running this on, on Kubernetes. Whoa, holy smokes, that's a lot on YAML. <laughs> YAML tends to balloon, doesn't it? <laughs> Big time, yeah. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about your deployment process, because it's kind of interesting that you have these hardware devices set up and, you know, literally out in the wild there. Like, how do you deploy new code to those from development to it being live on that box? Yeah, that was actually a huge pain point for a long time. And the process was some... Uh trusted friend of Nzolda in the Congo DRC would go out to the various locations, grab the SD cards and bring them an SD card with the newest code on it. So clearly that sneaker net approach doesn't scale. And so one thing we implemented about a year ago or so was an admin endpoint where the administrator set up on each of the local clients can uh, establish the internet connection using the normal means, you know, purchase some bandwidth, and then click a button and then the device would pull uh, down the latest code from PyPI, uh, download that package, install it, and then issue a, a restart command. And then we have a um, supervisor script that listens to a particular directory. And when, when a file is touched in a directory, it would say, oh, there is new code here. Okay, let me go and restart the Geonicon process so that gets uh, gets hot reloaded. That's working fairly okay for the client side. Uh, for the service side, we have things automated with GitHub Actions. And I know, Sean, that you worked on this. Do you want to talk a bit about the deployment process there? Certainly, I can uh, uh, provide a bit of a the beginning stages anyway. And so uh, we have the deployment process is broken into two fairly distinct uh, steps. And so 
we have our uh, all contributors essentially will push to a branch uh, on the uh, primary GitHub, and then as the uh, they will then submit a merge request uh, or and through the PR uh, towards the master branch. When that occurs, that will trigger a series of our continuous integrations. So through that, uh, we will run our uh, testing platform and ensure that everything's uh, meeting the requirements. That includes the linting and uh, operational tests that uh, that we have uh, currently implemented on both the client and the server side of the scripting. Uh, when that all passes, it then will require final approval. And so that typically is the our opportunity to verify that the code meets our sort of personal formatting needs. If there's adjustments uh, such as um, type suggestions and whatnot. And at that point, the approval goes in, it will uh, be merged into the master. And so now that's active on our GitHub and the local developers, for instance, myself, I can then pull off that master branch and conduct my additional, any additional testing that I would like to do. And uh, we have more of a manual uh, sort of pull process at that point. After we may have had a couple of PRs that have been submitted, we'll then um, fabricate a release. And it's the release is the major trigger that then updates the major external services, such as PyPy. Um, it will... Uh, update the Docker images. And uh, it's at that point that when that release has been provisioned that the device, the end unit devices can then pull the updated uh, the updated software themselves. So it's a disconnected, separated process that allows us to then have the greatest control over, over the deployment process. Uh, I'm unsure if there's anything else you'd like to elaborate on, Clemens? Uh, yeah, so in addition to pushing out to Docker Hub, IPI, and various other services for, you know, this is the latest version of the code, uh, we also issue a push-based deployment to the VM. So basically execute a script on our production VM that says, hey, pull down the latest Docker images and then restart the containers at, at that latest tag. That's the, the last step of that, and that is all fully automated through through GitHub Actions, just so that you know, when, when new contributors come in, the, it's a very easy for, for new people to issue releases and everything that you need to know, all the various steps in that chain is clearly documented in code. Right. So you mentioned there, uh, Sean, before you fabricate things, are you literally using the uh, the fab tool like Fabric? Oh, no. Apologies. That's uh, <laughs> just a misterm on my part. More of just generating, like creating something new. Right. And as for that push base there, like if you're pushing code from like GitHub Actions onto the VM on the server side, do you just have something like a bare Git repo that you're pushing that you just do like a Git post receive hook or do you just like execute a bash script remotely through uh, GitHub Actions? The, the latter. So we execute uh, a script via SSH on the VM and then that script will pull down the latest images from Docker Hub and do what's necessary to restart the service. Yeah, I love it. It's like such a basic setup, but in the end, it works so well. And I, I do very similar things in my own projects. And we did used to have, you know, Kubernetes rolling deployment, all of those good things. But again, it increases the barrier to entry. It, uh, now contributors don't only have to learn Python and Celery and Connection and Flask and low-level Linux stuff for dealing with networking on these devices and, and Azure, right, but also Kubernetes. And so that was a, a, a quite high barrier to entry 
And given our limited scale at this point, we didn't get all that much from the multi-node setup. So we simplified that, and I think that was actually a, a good step for us. Yeah, sounds like it for sure. So by the way, uh, you mentioned linting. Which library do you use for that? Well, it's quite a lot of them. So we have a Flake setup. We have um, there is one from from Google. It's like a formatter. It's a competitor to Block uh, that that we set up. There's MyPy for type checking. Uh, there is Bandit for security annotations. Uh, let me pull up the full list. Yeah, definitely. Sounds like you have a a handle on your linting there. It would be great to see the full list. One of the reasons why the linting is so uh, exhaustive is because we want all the code to be very easy for people to, to contribute to. And so the more consistent it can be, right, the more auto-formatters we can have, the, the, the easier it makes it for, for people to contribute. And the more the machine can say, hey, your pull request isn't up to snuff, the less one of the, the core contributors has to do that, right? And so it even is a nice win from a psychological point of view to, to, to enable the code to keep high quality, but still be consistent. Yeah, absolutely. So besides linting your Python code base, do you run any linters against any other things that you might have, like Terraform scripts, or I guess you just run Terraform's uh, analyzer on that? Yeah, so we, have, uh, we haven't set up anything for Terraform yet because that's not part of our main branch yet. However, we do lint our Docker files using Hadolint. Uh, we lint all of our shell scripts that hopefully are going to be fewer using ShellCheck, which is a great tool. Um, using Kubival for Kubernetes manifests, uh, those, those legacy manifests, using YAMLint for YAML files, uh, Helmlint and uh, Kubival for those legacy uh, Kubernetes files, and then Flake 8 and uh, the, the Python formatter for Python, as long as alongside MyPy, Band, and all those other things that, that we mentioned before. So by the way, earlier you did mention that, you know, end human beings who are using this service, they have to pay actual money, you know, to, to charge a card. Is that all happening through your infrastructure or is that through like a third party type of thing? That is something that we wish would happen through infrastructure. And actually, Sean can speak to that because I was working on a project to integrate with uh, a Linux tool that enables people to recharge the card. You know, in, 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 in olden times when we didn't have plans, right, you used to type in a code from, from a scratched off card to top up your, your, uh, your mobile balance, right? And that is still... Uh, de facto standard in a lot of um, places like the Congo DRC. And so we tried to integrate with a tool like that, but unfortunately faced a couple of roadblocks. So Sean can talk a little bit about that. So right now the the process unfortunately is somebody you know takes that SIM card, puts it into a phone, tops up the SIM card and puts it back into the device. And uh, ideally we'd, we'd remove a bit of that friction there. Um, but Sean, do you want to talk about some of the, the things that you tried there and what were the, the blockers we, we encountered? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one of the things for uh, visualization purposes, an external uh, apparatus that we do use is a USB modem attached to the Raspberry Pi. And that way we create the Wi-Fi hotspot with the Raspberry Pi's network, inf uh, network capability. And then we're using an external USB modem. One of the challenges that we faced is the uh, nature of these USB modems. They're consistently falling obsolete and uh, they're becoming more and more challenging to get our hands on and so the current uh, unit that we use is called a Huawei MS2131 and it uh, is what's installed with our current production devices and so all of this has been put uh, contained within a custom enclosure that we've designed and uh, 3D printed and so all these the uh, actual uh, tropicalized housing is available on the GitHub as well. And so that way then the unit can be built. But 
uh, the current methodology for updating a balance is somebody physically has to dismantle the case, take the SIM card out of the USB modem, install it into a phone, and then follow the processes. So I originally was trying to utilize a library called GAMU, uh, or a technology, sorry, called GAMU. And they have a uh, Python sort of fork of it that has some Python, direct Python integration for it. Uh, and this would allow the end user, the intention was, is within the admin panel, uh, that uh, any administrator on the client devices can log in through the settings page and run a check balance and see how much balance is remaining on their SIM cards uh, and uh, then be able to update it. And so use that code off of the scratch card uh, and be able to update the balance on the SIM cards. Unfortunately, due to the nature of the, um, the serial connections with the current uh, USB modems that we're using, it wouldn't configure with... Uh, with these technologies and so it's a little bit of a fight of some out-of-date technologies and trying to make it mesh with the more modern ones. Uh, there was some other tooling that I tried to utilize such as uh, manually doing it via serial and uh, create just more of a hand-coded serial um, process and uh, that additionally uh, kept, ran into the same issues. And so, yes, the current uh, the current requirements is that somebody gets a pay-as-you-go SIM card and they have to physically remove it from the device, install it into their own, and vice versa to uh, to ensure that there's a constant balance. But, you know, if, if one of your listeners is uh, very familiar with uh, serial commands or GAMU or dealing with SIM cards in general, that is an area where it definitely would love to have some, some expertise and, and some help uh, to, you know, pick up that work that uh, Sean started and then get that completed because, you know, it would be a lot better user experience to not always have to dismantle everything and uh, just to recharge the, the SIM card. Unfortunately, we, we came to a roadblock where we're just kind of at the end of our technical ability uh, as far as debugging those those issues were. But do you think, like, in the end, someone who was, like, a super wizard in that tech stack would be able to solve the problem? I would assume so. This has to be possible somehow, right? Like, it's these... Uh, uh, commands for like topping up your your SIM card. Essentially, Gamu takes those and lets you execute them against a SIM card. So for it, it must be possible to to achieve this using some programmatic way. And that was the thing. Yes, I was able with um, a different USB modem was able to successfully orchestrate this. But unfortunately, the modem itself is no longer available, and you have no accessibility to it. Um, and so that was kind of that roadblock was using the technology we have available to us it was just out of the scope of my as uh as clement said it was out of the scope of my technical sort of upper threshold so yeah don't don't get me started on usb modems like i could rant about those for a good hour straight uh it's very poorly documented technology in many cases and each of them kind of has its disadvantages for example that uh, Huawei, Huawei E303 uh, is the one where, where Sean got the gamma commands to work to top it up but then that is a modem that was designed principally for use with Windows and so to actually get it to run on Linux you have to use USB mode switch send it some magic strings that you have to somehow find somewhere on the internet if you're lucky uh, to, to make the modem actually switch from storage mode into USB mode on Linux. Um, whereas the MS-21318, uh, that is built for Linux, right? So it's easier to actually use the modem, but then it has these incompatibilities with tools like Gamo. Like it's definitely a, an, an interesting space to, to operate in. 
yeah, it really makes you feel like you're so fortunate when you're dealing with something like Flask or Docker or Python or whatever, where, you know, there's just so much community support out there to just get help when you need it. Like you can Google almost any problem and find a solution, but now it seems like you're on the hook for, you know, figuring some really crazy low-level stuff out that's not even documented. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the server-side development is almost the easiest part of this project, and a lot of the difficulty is in getting that network connectivity on those devices in the Congo DRC. That's also where a lot of the pain comes from, like when the network connectivity fails, like something went wrong with WV dial. Okay, so now how do we get the logs from the device that failed to actually connect to the internet? How do, you, how do we remote debug that, right? It's a device somewhere in a village in the Congo DRC that's about three hours from the closest bigger city. It's like, okay, so you know, you have to send somebody to fetch physically that SD card to give you the logs. Like it's a very high latency debugging process. It's much easier to just attach to the Docker logs from your production server or to go into application insights and see your exceptions there. It definitely has given me a whole new appreciation for IoT developers, embedded systems developers um, versus uh, service developers. Yeah, and I was actually going to follow up with that because that's like such an important thing about deploying anything, right? It's like, what do you do when disaster strikes or some unexpected events? And it sounds like the workflow for getting logs out of the client box is, yeah, a huge pain if you have to go like literally three hours there and back or whatever. Yeah, so we, we do try to, you know, send telemetry when, for example, the device updates, we have a lot of monitoring on our service side with Azure Application Insights, um, but then for the actual client connections, if they somehow fail to dial up, if they somehow fail to get the network connectivity, there is very little we can do. Um, we could probably do something around like SMS commands and things like that. Uh, I looked into that a little while ago, but it, it becomes a very difficult debugging environment. So what are some of the craziest problems that happened with the uh, hardware box? Like things that you just had real trouble debugging? It's mostly around the internet connectivity, like the modem randomly switching back out of the uh, modem mode into storage mode and that not being detectable on the Linux side. It is things like the internet connection. So you, you dial up with WB dial and then it says, hey, you have now an internet connection, then it randomly crashes and you don't, don't get any feedback from the dialer daemon back. And so now you have to detect that your network connection was lost. You have to retry your, your upload, um, even things like handling all of the various ways in which the SIM card dial-up can fail. Uh, it's really, we, that is one of our main pain points is that uh, network connection from, from the client devices. Right. Yeah. It sounds like uh, the opposite of a good time. <laughs> now, uh, on that hardware box, though, you mentioned that you do have a SQL Alchemy database just, you know, sitting there as your database. Do you somehow back that up remotely sometimes or no? We transfer all the emails from the client devices onto the server side, and that actually enables us to also uh, offer a web login. So when uh, users are away from their home device, they can still go to an internet cafe and log into our web portal and access the emails there. Um, so that is sort of a backup. And we have a copy of all the emails indexed in in the cloud. However, the actual database file on that device isn't being backed up because, you know, we have a copy of the data anyway, so people can still access that. And we haven't faced any issues with that data file getting corrupted. And if we had to actually update a physical SQLite database, you know, now we're 2xing our bandwidth costs, right? Because we're on one hand transferring the emails for being sent and for being received, and then we're doing the same thing again for the database file. And that just wouldn't be cost effective for our target users. Right. That's very cool, though. It sounds like what they just top up their their minutes that they buy, and then they just get access to that web portal as just part of what they get. Exactly. Yeah. That was a fairly recent project. And uh, it, it is also this project of being able to run the client 
outside of the environment of the hardware um, device and run that in, in a cloud environment that led us to improve some of the development setup and make things more integrated so that you can now have one command that doesn't only spin up the uh, the services or a command that spins up the client but one command that really spins up the entire stack end-to-end was a fair bit of surgery required to you know decouple the client from the Linux C Raspberry Pi environment uh, and make that run also in a Docker environment, but uh, we we were able to pull that off, and so now I think it's uh, good for developers and good for users at the same time. Right. Yeah, that surgery sounds like a shotgun surgery, maybe. <laughs> That's one way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, speaking though about disasters and unexpected events and things like that, what about on the server side? Like, how do you deal with you know, backing things up that needs to be backed up or, you know, getting notified of if things happen to go astray? So we have Azure Application Insights uh, that integrates with Flask. I actually wrote that implementation, pushed that back upstream. So it's basically Azure Application Insights as a service, a bit like uh, Sentry uh, or uh, Rollbar, you know, add to your application. And then if there's any unhandled exceptions that will get logged, you can log custom business events. So we get some telemetry of uh, usage uh, from, from application insights. So we basically wrap our Flask application in, in that SDK. And then all of the Flask logs flow to Azure. We actually turn that off because it's quite expensive. Uh, it can get quite expensive, at least for, for our budgets. Uh, you know, the, the custom telemetry flows to Azure and the exceptions flow to Azure. And then we have a dashboard that shows us if there's any unheld exceptions and then we can go look into those. Uh, like this, for example, we found that uh, sometimes service bus, which we're using as the, the queue for our salary uh, backend, uh, randomly hangs up the connection. And then our salary workers die. So we looked a bit into how to how to resolve that. Uh, these kind of things that you never see during local testing, right? And so it's really good to have those production errors automatically being surfaced. Right. So for that SDK you did mention, you can use something like Sentry or Rollbar. Do you use neither of them then? It's just purely handled by Azure? Yeah, it's uh, Azure Application Insights, which is essentially the Azure service equivalent of Sentry. Ah, I see. Okay. And then just like for the logs themselves, if you ever had to really go in there and look at them, do you just SSH into the VM and use something like uh, Journal CTL or whatever? That's just, that's exactly what we're doing currently, yeah. Uh, because the the feature of App Insights to ship the logs to Azure and make them searchable there uh, turned out too expensive for a budget. So now we stage into the box and then use the Docker logs to to uh, uh, pull pull those down and investigate. Right. So just to wrap up here on the tech stack stuff, like earlier you mentioned that you are using SendGrid to send transactional emails. Were there any other SaaS tools that you happen to be using or no? It sounds like maybe not. It's mostly on, on the Azure platform plus SendGrid, and SendGrid you know, is also nicely integrated with Azure. Uh, we have a fairly high free tier there, so that is another thing. Let's keep our costs low. And we use SendGrid for two pieces. One of them is when users you know, who wrote emails on the clients uh, uploaded them to our cloud, and then we turned them into uh, real MIME emails, uh, you know, decompress them, then use SendGrid to send those out to the world. And the other feature we use a SendGrid for is uh, email receiving. So whenever a new client device is registered, uh, we set up a webhook with SendGrid that says, hey, whenever somebody sends an email to foo.locally.ca, uh, post that to an endpoint in, in our Azure cloud. And then you know, SendGrid has a feature with uh, called in, inbound parse where they say, okay, anything sent to your MX records will post it to your callback URL. And uh, so we use that for, for receiving emails that are sent from like, Gmail or Outlook back to, to one of our users. And then that webhook will basically receive the email, turn it into our space-saving format, and then uh, save it for um, un- until the, the client uh, next connects and downloads the, the emails that were sent to it. 
Very cool. So by the way, speaking about like disasters and, you know, you just explaining that workflow there, uh, have you ever had to deal with like poor deliverable uh, deliverability ratings or do you do you, like all emails end up going through? Given that these are emails sent by real humans, uh, they, they tend not to be marked as spam once they're received, right? Uh, so we haven't had any deliverability issues so far. Uh, we did have to set up a bunch of things with SendGrid, you know, to provide... Uh, DKIM, like all of those records that you set on your zone to prove that, yeah, this is really your zone and you're really allowing sending for sending these emails. So we had to set those up. But after that was done, we, we didn't have any issues with deliverability. Right. Yeah, I remember setting that stuff up once. It's uh, quite the adventure, like SPF stuff. I'm like, wait, isn't SPF like the thing that protects you from the sun? Like there was a lot of new terms to learn. Yeah, it's definitely been a learning experience also for, for me and other contributors that stack to pull off something like this. Although, you know, you have all of these powerful SaaS solutions that make it easy to to do it, but you still have to learn so many things, right? Like we have everything here from low-level Linux networking things to web applications to then how do you scale things in the cloud while minimizing your, your, your costs to emails uh, and uh, vendor APIs there. There's definitely a lot to learn. Yeah, for sure. And by the way, speaking of like SaaS tools and things to learn and all these moving parts, do you use something like Azure's load balancer or do you have like Cloudflare in front of all this or no? We do have Cloudflare in front of it and that's what we use to manage our um, DNS. Uh, I mentioned when clients register, we have to set up MX records for them so that emails can actually be delivered to, to SendGrid. So Cloudflare is really nice there because, you know, they have a nice API that we can use. And so we're, we're making use of them heavily for that automation of the uh, DNS settings. And actually, we're using that via Apache LibCloud, which is a Python project that provides a unified interface to a bunch of different vendors. So we could also switch out Cloudflare with another DNS provider fairly easily because we didn't integrate directly against their API. Uh, we use LibCloud to kind of have an abstraction layer there. Ah, very nice. That sounds like uh, definitely a good tip to know. And and speaking of good tips, like what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this? And you know, each of you can can say your best tips in turn. Uh, sure. So for me. Uh, the main tips have mostly been on the soft skill side, as in making projects easy for people to contribute to. So we've had, you know, Sean is one of our uh, main contributors currently, but we also have other people contributing. For example, we have Adam, who's working on building email services so that users can send emails to particular mailboxes and then, you know, for example, execute Wikipedia searches. Uh, we've had people from Cornell Tech uh, integrating with uh, Internet in the Box project and various other contributors over, over the years. Um, but uh, the key behind enabling all of those contributors was that easy development setup experience. And if somebody has to configure 10 services, install 50 different daemons before they can run their application, you know, they're probably not going to persist through all of that. And so really investing heavily in tooling and uh, making that first start experience easy for new contributors is one of my main lessons learned. And so, you know, the, the things that also come from that is defining interfaces to all of your dependencies so that you can swap them out. Celery makes that quite easy, right? So you can replace service bus with, uh, with RabbitMQ to run locally. We're also using tools like uh, uh, LibCloud, for example, to abstract away your DNS providers. You can swap in uh, dummy one when you're running locally or uh, so that you can swap in a different type of storage as opposed to relying on the Azure storage account. Right. Yeah, it sounds like a, a really good idea that uh, you wrap things up in Docker because I can't imagine trying to get contributors on Windows if like you had to set up like DNS mask. It's like, good luck with that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, as, as easy as can, you can make that first development setup experience, you know, Docker and Docker Compose are definitely great helps there. And then the other part that I would mention is testing and uh, CI. Uh, so we have a 
very extensive test suite, uh, lots of unit tests on the service side, on the client side, and also integration tests that actually simulate the entire flow that a normal user would go through against the stack running in Docker Compose. And so any new contributor, even if they're very junior, they can come to the project and they know if the CI passes, you very likely didn't break anything. So it removes an entire level of anxiety and again, blockers to contribution. Um, and that's saved us a number of times uh, from, from merging uh, broken code. So the more we can invest into, especially those end-to-end -end tests that are really representative of the user journeys, uh, the, that, that's paid off uh, big time for us. Yeah, for sure. You can never have too many tests. What about you, Sean? Best tips, lessons learned? Uh, yeah, the, definitely I'll have more focus on the lessons learned than the best tips. Um, this has been one of the first real production environments that I've been actively contributing to. And so one of the major factors I did find, Clemens uh, naturally touched on it, was that ability of how important clear documentation is. But then on top of that is um, the ability to navigate code by having that sort of clear variable names and your utilizing those best practices so that when you are working with external parties, I didn't have to, for instance, constantly harass Clemens because uh, I just couldn't necessarily find this one thing. I, you can effectively navigate through and it allows for much clearer pathways. And one of the big factors, as Clemens brought up the documentation is, is the factor of writing documentation or uh, testing, I apologize, is writing your tests in a format that they also can read as a documentation so that you get a clear understanding of what exactly it is that it's testing, what you want your end result to be, and have it very clearly dictated. So don't necessarily just compress a test down to this one hyper-optimized line that, yes, it might give you that end uh, result, but it's almost useless for those onboarding of the um, the extra parties and so they can come in and actually get a much better understanding of how does this function or what's the expected result of this function they likely can then just go to your test and understand what the intention is uh, from the testing yeah i think you just accidentally released like one of the best tips ever right it's like don't go too crazy abstracting your tests and that's definitely uh super valid because i love being able to look at a project's test and understand how to actually use the library or, or you know, thing that it's supposed to do. Like that's super important. Yeah, exactly. It was definitely a like powerful thing for me to get a better understanding of not just that this is a function and understanding the base logic, but knowing what piece of the puzzle that contributes and what I should be expecting to release from it. Right. So do you end up writing uh, maybe like user story type of test then, like as documentation or no? Like as a user, I want to access the admin page and as you know, a regular user, I'll be denied access to the admin, you know, like that type of stuff. Yeah, so we have some of those tests in our integration tests uh, that run against uh, the local stack running in Docker. And so we have sample journeys, like uh, when we log in with this account that is an admin, we can actually do this operation, like for example, sync the emails when we log in with an account that isn't an admin, we can't. Uh, similarly, when we send this kind of email, we will get a reply back from the, the Wikipedia email service, for example, that will have these kind of things in it. So the especially those integration tests really encode the, the most valuable user journeys. Uh, and that's been a great uh, a benefactor also in, in locally testing. Like you spin up the stack, you build a new feature. How do we exercise that? Okay, let's just write one of those end-to-end -end integration tests, right? So you don't have to click around in the UI all the time. Right. Yeah, and I find tests like that to be, especially like the documentation around them, to be really good to future self, right? It's like when you're going back to the code base three or four months from now, you actually understand why you wrote that feature. 
For sure, and especially with a project that doesn't have a commercial entity behind it, that future proofing and that communication with future self becomes very important because you know people contribute to their abilities as they have time. Uh, life happens, so we've had people drift kind of on and off the project, but uh, it's definitely the, the timelines for us a little bit longer than for a commercial project, and so that communication, as you say, with future self is hugely important. Yep. So Clayman, Sean, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was always great having you guys on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. And uh, if any of your listeners think this is interesting, want to contribute, you can find us at github.com slash ascodero, A-S-C-O-D-E-R-U. We're always welcoming contributors and we have work on basically all parts of the stack, as I hope came through this uh, conversation. Yeah, you actually beat me to it. So I was going to say, like, before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to any sites like Twitter, GitHub profiles, things like that? So the main place where you can find us is GitHub. Uh, we run our entire project uh, on GitHub. Everything's uh, entirely in the open. So if you're interested in contributing, open an issue. Uh, there's also some contact emails there you can reach out to, or you can find out more about the project, the background, and the impact it's having on our website, askodero.ca. Um, and we'll have links to those in the show notes, I assume. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop those into the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.